असतो मद्गमय तमसो मोतिर्गमय मृत्योर्मामृतंगमय ओ शांति 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 लीडर्स फ्रॉम द अनरियल टू द रियल लीडर्स फ्रॉम डार्कनेस टू लाइट लीडर्स from death to immortality om peace 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 be unto us peace be unto all friends the subject for today's service is the value of uprightness vedanta teaches that our true nature is divine and the realization of this divinity is the goal of human life not thinking that we are the body or the mind but asserting our spiritual nature reminding ourselves of our spiritual nature all the time and going about our activities is what amounts to spiritual life when we say spiritual life we try to abide as the spirit instead of as the body or the mind and there are a number of spiritual qualities that a seeker gainfully cultivates in a spiritual life in the bhagavad gita we find in the second chapter 12th chapter and the 14th chapter certain qualities enumerated qualities of a person who has realized himself or has realized god both of which mean the same thing in the second chapter shri krishna describes to arjuna the characteristics of a person of steady wisdom how he walks how he speaks how he goes about doing things and in the 12th chapter shri krishna describes the characteristics of a devotee who is dear to god and in the 14th chapter shri krishna describes the characteristics of a person who has transcended the three gunas sattva rajas and tamas transcending the three gunas means knowing the self which is beyond the three gunas now what is the purpose of such enumeration of the qualities of a perfect person of what use is this enumeration to common people to spiritual seekers in other words shri shankaracharya gives the answer to this doubt in our mind in the second chapter before shri krishna describes how a person of steady wisdom how he goes about things what are his characteristics before these are being enumerated shri shankara says these qualities which are accomplishments and embellishments of sort 
for a realized soul are to be steadfastly cultivated by a spiritual seeker on his spiritual journey so these qualities are steadfastly cultivated and then they become embellishments we don't consciously try to have these qualities but these qualities become a part of our being once we realize the self but until then we need to cultivate these qualities that is why such a long list in the second chapter 12th chapter and the 14th chapter and again in the 16th chapter we have a few qualities mentioned the 16th chapter is called the yoga of divine and demonic qualities here again some divine qualities and more of uh, demonic qualities enumerated in the 16th chapter and we have in the 13th chapter also some qualities described as science of knowledge second chapter 12th chapter 14th chapter these enumerate the qualities of a perfect person a person who has realized god a person who has transcended the three gunas 13th chapter science of knowledge spiritual knowledge and the 16th chapter divine and demonic qualities now in the 13th and the 16th chapter we find one quality mentioned in both the places in sanskrit you call it arjava arjava means uprightness it means straightforwardness being in alignment being in synchronization it comes from the word ruju ruju in sanskrit means that which is straight that which is truthful so from ruju comes arjava arjava means uprightness straightforwardness and we will consider today different implications of this uprightness what is meant by this uprightness we have seen that self realization or god realization alone makes human birth fruitful and we have four different yogas or four different temperaments for the active temperament karma yoga for the emotional temperament bhakti yoga for the contemplative temperament raj yoga and for the philosophical temperament jnana yoga so all these yogas lead us to that one goal not outside of us it doesn't lead us to a goal like leading us to a place but leading us to that divinity which is within which is our true nature so these qualities as we have seen these qualities help us manifest more and more of that hidden divinity so uprightness has to be studied from that standpoint uprightness essentially means foundation in a strong moral character and living for certain higher values a strong foundation and moral character and holding fast to certain higher values considering no sacrifice too great to live for these values 
Sri Ramakrishna's father was one such upright person, Kudiram Chattopadhyay. He lived in a village not far from Kamarpukur, the place of Sri Ramakrishna's birth. The village was called Derepur. This Kudiram, he had his family, household, a very pious person, devoted to God, an upright person, living for certain higher values. Once the landlord in that small village wanted this Kudiram to bear false witness in a case so that it could be won in favor of the landlord. Kudiram said no, any kind of falsehood was against his nature. When he said no, the landlord threatened him that he would be evicted from the village along with family and whatever little possession he had. Kudiram didn't change his stand because being upright was more important to him than any kind of possessions, even basic living. So it so happened that along with his family and whatever little possession he had, he had to leave the village. And then he comes to Kamarpakur and a relative of his gave him a piece of land and Kudiram set up his family there. He was upright, but this uprightness cost him his basic life. But we should also remember that he had a son, Sri Ramakrishna, who is worshipped as a special manifestation of the Divine all over the world. So uprightness involves standing for certain values and it also involves sacrifice. When we stand for certain principles, it's not possible to be good to everyone all the time. If goodness is the ideal, which some people think, they can be good to everyone, even at the cost of compromising their principles. But if holding aloft the principles is more important, that comes at the cost of some sacrifice. So uprightness involves sacrifice. Sacrifice of not necessarily possessions, but sacrifice of some self-interest, some selfishness, and just being good to people. Now we'll see different implications of uprightness from the commentaries on these verses in the Gita, the 13th chapter and the 16th chapter. We saw that in both these chapters we find this uprightness mentioned specially. Shishankara explains Arjava as simplicity or the absence of crookedness. Simplicity. Sri Ramakrishna also teaches that we need to be simple. He says the ultimate truth is simple, Sahaja. To know that ultimate truth which is Sahaja, we need to be Sahaja. Sahaj. Sahaja means simple. Sahaja also means what is born along with us. Sahaja, our inherent nature is also called Sahaja. 
So sahaja means her true nature. Sahaja means something that is simple. In Indian languages, you say something is sahaja means something is simple. A problem is sahaja. You can solve it in a simple manner. So we need to be simple to be able to realize that simple with a capital S, that ultimate truth. And the opposite of the simplicity is crookedness. Crookedness means something that is not in alignment, very simple. But this crookedness is in the mind. Uprightness is in the mind. Crookedness is also in the mind. Crookedness is essentially prompted by selfishness, greed, desire. Crookedness may lead to some temporary gains, but the price we pay to gain these temporary things is really high. Because in the long run, crookedness can loosen our moral strength, moral fiber. It can weaken us morally. When we are crooked, prompted by selfishness, most often we try to let the end justify the means. I need to accomplish something. Accomplish it by hook or crook. But the end is important. How I accomplish it? If I cut some throats in the process, as long as I get the end, it is all right. That is what is crookedness. That is not one-pointedness or strengthening of the will. It doesn't help us strengthen the will, though some kind of a willpower is required even for such crooked acts. That doesn't help us in our inner evolution. So crookedness comes with a price. And a person who is habitually crooked, may be good-looking outside, he could be gentleman. But there are so many kinks in the heart, there are so many kinks in his character, that at some point, when the person sees the folly of being crooked and wants to turn over a new leaf, then he understands what a great price he has paid by being crooked. Because this crookedness, essentially it pertains to our actions, our thoughts. And these crooked thoughts and actions leave their own impressions in our mind. And as we have seen any number of times, with every repetition, these impressions keep getting deepened. They become deep, they become stronger. And the stronger they become, the greater is the tendency to repeat them. So when we see the folly of the whole thing, this crookedness, when we try to effect some change in ourselves, the resistance offered by the mind, prompted by these crooked impressions, can unnerve us. It's not a surprise that people know what is right, that they're not able to do it. They know what is wrong. They're not able to give it up. That was precisely the predicament of Duryodhana, the villain in the Mahabharata. This wonderful verse is put in his mouth. He says, I know what is right. I know what is dharma, righteousness. I'm not able to practice it. I don't have the inclination to practice it. 
I know what is adharma, what is immoral. I am not able to give it up. So that was Duryodhana's predicament. He was crooked, he was evil from the beginning. He had an evil uncle who had his own agenda. So he injected all venom into his nephew to further his own ends. So this Duryodhana was all evil, all crookedness. Uprightness was something alien to him. So this is what we find, this verse being put into his mouth. I know what is right, I am not able to do it, I know what's bad, I am not able to give it up. That's the price people pay for crookedness. Sri Ramanuja explains Arjava as a uniform disposition toward others in mind, speech and body. Not thinking of something and then interacting in an acceptable way with others, but trying to be sincere. The mind, speech and action, these three in alignment, what we mean that we do, these are in alignment, that is what uprightness means. Sri Ramakrishna taught his disciples to make their mind and speech one. He says, it won't do to be a traitor in your thoughts. You think something noble, but do something contrary. That is being a traitor to your own thoughts. So Sri Ramakrishna says, don't be a traitor in your thoughts. See that your mind and speech and of course, by implication, actions. They are in alignment. So that is uprightness. We have another commentary on the Gita by Sant Gyaneshwar. He was a famous saint of Maharashtra. There is a beautiful temple in a place called Alandi, where the saint had Mahasamadhi. When the mission in his life was over, he sat in meditation, absorbed in samadhi, before which he told his disciples to build a tomb around him. That's how he had Mahasamadhi. So that place is rich in spiritual vibration. And his commentary on the Gita, in ancient Marathi, in verse form, is called Jnaneshwari and devotees consider it an act of great spiritual merit to read this Gita Bhashya. It's in poetic form, as we have seen. You call it Parayana. Some people recite from the Gita every day. Some people recite some other hymns every day as a part of spiritual practice. So in this temple, you will see Devotees sitting in groups reading from this Gita, Gita Bhashya, Jnaneshwari. His commentary is known for its devotion, stress on devotion as well as knowledge. In his commentary, we find several more interpretations of uprightness. The first thing he says is, 
Arjava, uprightness, means treating all equally without likes or dislikes. This is really a spiritual quality. If you are upright, we won't show favoritism to some and we won't reject some others. So treating everyone equally without like or dislike which means loving everyone equally. How to love everyone equally? We find this from Holy Mother's teachings. A little girl, maybe four or five years old, we don't get to know the age of the child, but this girl was known to be a little naughty, as children are. And this girl used to visit Holy Mother along with her own mother. The mother was a devotee. So the little girl used to visit the Holy Mother along with her mother. And mother used to feed the child, give it prasad. And Holy Mother, as we know from her biography, used to divide her time between Calcutta, Udbodhan, where she lived, and Jairambati, her birthplace about 90 miles away. So once before she left for Jairambati, Holy Mother asked this child, Do you love me? The child said, Yes, I love you. How much do you love me? The child stretched both its hands as far as it could and said, I love you so much. Then mother asked the child, Will you continue to love me even after I am gone to Jairambati? The child said, Yes, I will continue to love you. Mother said, How will I know that you continue to love me even after I am gone to Jairambati? Now this apparently naughty child proves its intelligence. Mother, what should I do to make you know that I continue to love you even after you are gone to Jairambati. Mother said, If you love everyone equally, I will understand that you continue to love me even after I am gone from here. The child, how to love everyone equally? Now, Holy Mother teaches the highest Vedanta, oneness of existence, to this child in a way she can understand. And this teaching left a profound impression on the child's mind. She definitely became much better. You don't have details about the girl, but you can be sure that with mother's blessings and her assimilation of this teaching, she definitely grew up to be a responsible individual. How to love everyone equally? Mother said, do not expect anything from anyone you love. You expect something, some people give you something, you tend to love them more. Some people don't give you what you expect, you tend to love them less. So that way you won't be able to love everyone equally. That's a great teaching. Love everyone equally means don't expect anything from anyone. Because we love someone, we expect something from them. 
That is the natural tendency of the mind. Don't expect anything from anyone. You will be able to love everyone equally. So that is one of the implications of uprightness. Treating all equally without likes or dislikes. I'll quote what Holy Mother said. Do not demand anything of those you love. If you make demands, some will give you more and some less. In that case, you will love more those who give you more and less those who give you less. Thus your love will not be the same for all. You will not be able to love all impartially. The second implication that we get from Sant Gnaneshwar's commentary is not making any distinction of mine or of others. That means we don't spread the tentacles of mine. Swami Vivekananda says, have everything in the world, live in the world, all right, but don't spread these tentacles of I and mine toward things, toward people. These are mine. These people are mine. These possessions are mine. So don't spread your tentacles. We saw that Simplicity is an important virtue, stressed in Sri Ramakrishna's teachings. Simplicity is another meaning of uprightness, and this lack of simplicity is due to selfishness, and the selfishness is related to I and mine. I am so and so, these are mine, these people are mine, these possessions are mine. So that kind of an ego. That is not good for spiritual life. That Sri Ramakrishna calls unripe ego. The ego that bases itself on finite things, on people, on finite inanimate things. These are my people. These are my things. That kind of an ego. Sri Ramakrishna says this ego is detrimental to spiritual life. We need to cultivate the ego that bases itself on God, on the self. I am a child of God. That's also an ego. I am a child of God. I am the spirit. I am not the body. I am not the mind. Being egotistical with reference to the body and the mind. And of course the senses by implication. That kind of an ego is required for a spiritual seeker. Most of the time, we think, oh, this ego is harmful, how to eliminate this ego? Because we read this teaching. The ego is the main obstacle to God-realization. So how to eliminate the ego? That's what people think about. But Sri Ramakrishna says, this ego cannot be easily eliminated. You think that you got out of the ego. That very thinking proves that ego is still in you. So it's not possible to get rid of the ego. Sri Ramakrishna says, re-educate the ego. Instead of letting it sustain itself from its attachment to ephemeral things, let the ego be rooted in the self. I am a child of God. I am the Atman. Sri Ramakrishna calls this ego of devotion, ego of knowledge. I am a spark of the divine fire. So this kind of an ego is called ripe ego. And this ripe ego 
needs to be cultivated, needs to be strengthened for any of our spiritual practice to be meaningful. The ego is usually attached to the mind, attached to the body, and as we saw, attached to people and places. This ego will not help us strengthen our spiritual practice. This ego needs to be freed from the hold of the body, mind, and the senses, and it needs to be colored with this divinity. I am a child of God. I am a spark of the divine fire. When we abide in that, the mind is not going to let us do it. That's a different matter. We don't need to have the mind's permission to abide as the self. We need to do it despite resistance from the mind. When we do that, we are able to do work as worship. We are able to observe the workings of the mind when we do work. We are able to do our spiritual practice more meaningfully. We are able to repeat the divine name with our whole mind, with an alert mind. Not a part of the mind repeating the name and the whole of the being along with me, along with I, and going along with the mind. Somewhere else, sometime else, back in time, or in future. So that is what is stressed here. Ripe ego. We need to strengthen this ripe ego and that will help us remain upright. And this I and mine in the world, how to get rid of this and how to make it ripe ego. Sri Ramakrishna gives an example, an everyday example. He says, live in the world like a maidservant in a rich man's house. The maidservant brings up the rich man's children, feeds them, clothes them, plays with them, looking upon them as if they are her own children. But she is conscious within that they are not her children really, that her own place is elsewhere, her own children are elsewhere. But she looks upon them as if they are her own. That means the quality of her service to these children has to be the best. Otherwise, of course, she won't be able to continue with her job. So she looks upon this rich man's children as if they are her children and takes care of them. Sri Ramakrishna says, live in the world like this, like a maidservant. Prompted by your karma, we get a particular family, we marry a person, and then we have children. We have responsibilities. So responsibilities toward our wife, husband, and children have to be discharged, but with a different outlook. Not looking upon them as if they are my own, but they are God's children. I am a child of God. So they are also children of God. So I need to remind myself that I am a child of God. That kind of a thing is fundamental to this. I am a child of God. My husband, wife, children, they are also children of God. So whatever I do to them by way of uh, discharging my responsibilities, that amounts to taking care of God's children, the Master's children. As if they are my own, but they are really God's. They are my own, it doesn't need any explanation. 
my husband, my wife, my children. But that's not the truth, says Sri Ramakrishna. They are God's children. So when we do this, when we change this attitude, what happens? The quality of our service to them will be nothing but the best. We won't escape from our responsibilities in the name of devotion, in the name of meditation. But the whole family can be mutual helps in their journey toward God. The next interpretation Sant Gyaneshur gives of uprightness is an upright mental attitude. He says, an upright person does not bear a grudge against anyone. For harms intended or unintended, he doesn't bear a grudge against anyone. He forgets, forgives, he doesn't hold anything against anyone. And we also read in this commentary that such a person's mental attitude is as straight as the sweep of the wind, leaving him free from desire and doubt. This desire and doubt, there are two things, two negative things to contend with. The Gita says, he who is habitually doubtful will not be able to realize the truth. We spend our whole life in reading books, in trying to dabble with, experiment with something. We don't find it satisfactory. There is some doubt somewhere. Try something else. We keep on doubting. Some people think that God should give them some glimpse of Him before they really begin their spiritual life. This kind of a barter doesn't work. If we don't care for God, God cares for us, but we don't know about it. But God doesn't care if we care for Him. In other words, God is not in a great hurry to bring us to Him. Sri Ramakrishna's example again. The mother lets the child play for as long as it wants with its toys. As long as the child is happy playing with the toys, the mother is busy in the kitchen doing her work. But when the child is done with the toys, doesn't find the toys entertaining any longer, throws away the toys and cries, Mother. The mother comes running. The mother comes running, takes the child on her lap and begins to nurse the child. Wonderful example. But a profound truth is illustrated here. The mother, the Divine Mother, lets her children play with the toys of the world for as long as they want, as long as they're happy. With the happiness coming from all these toys of the world, God lets us play. God is in no great hurry. If someone says, I don't believe in God, God will say, God speak to you. When the time comes, you will come around. It can take any number of births. But one great thing with Vedanta is, Hinduism is, no one is condemned. There is no eternal damnation. Everyone, even the worst sinner, can be redeemed by divine grace. But no one is going to lose their sleep if we don't turn ourselves to God. When the right time comes, we turn to God. And by God's grace, we try to intensify our spiritual life. 
So that is one thing to be kept in mind. God lets us play for as long as we want. And Sri Ramakrishna says, unless we are done with our play, unless we have had our own quota of enjoyment in this world, spiritual teachings don't make a dent in our mind. That's a very uncomfortable but profound truth. We can hear about spiritual truths, we can study spiritual books, but for us to undergo character transformation involves practice of spiritual discipline, involves prayer to God. Nothing happens by chance. Nothing happens by passage of years. The only thing that happens is our body undergoes transformation. A young body becomes old, the mind continues to be what it was unless it has been cultured and purified. That is the only thing that happens with passage of time. And the body finally dies. The mind intact. So we need to work, we need to struggle if we take spiritual life seriously. So, an upright mental attitude means a mind that is free from desire and doubt. And such a person doesn't have to keep his mind on a leash because the mind is so controlled that it habitually thinks of God. It habitually dwells on God. That is his ideal state. But for spiritual seekers, we need to keep the mind under leash for a long time before it begins to be our friend. That happens when it is sufficiently disciplined. Until then, we need to stop listening to the mind, stop identifying with the mind. We need to repeatedly assert our individuality, our independence from the mind and the senses. The next interpretation for uprightness in Sant Jnaneshwar's commentary is a disciplined sensory system. An upright person has his senses well disciplined. The ears, the skin, the eyes, the tongue and the nose, these five sense organs, they bring us knowledge of objects in the world. They help us in our perception. They help us in enjoyment. Enjoyment born of the contact of senses with their objects. So these five senses, they're very important. A spiritual seeker tries to discipline them. Because we cannot afford to let the senses and the mind, we cannot afford to give them a free reign and expect to reign in the mind at the same time. The senses have to be disciplined in the sense we see only what is auspicious, we hear what is auspicious and so on. That famous Shanti Mantra, may we hear what is auspicious, may we see what is auspicious. So we become quality conscious of what we take in through our senses. That's because an undisciplined mind and senses, when they're undisciplined, they act against our interest. Sri Krishna teaches in the sixth chapter of the Gita, our own self is our friend. 
our own self is our enemy. When the mind is disciplined, it acts as our friend. When the mind is not disciplined, it acts as our enemy. So, disciplining the mind and the senses is also a meaning of uprightness. How important this discipline of the senses is can be understood from the Gita. Sri Krishna says in the third chapter, after discussing desire, he tells Arjuna what is the root of desire, what is the seat of desire, where does desire dwell, what a great enemy, the greatest enemy desire is. It is all devouring. It devours our knowledge, it devours our discrimination, it devours our realization. He tells Arjuna all this and finally says toward the end of the third chapter, Therefore, discipline your sensory system at the outset. That is the teaching that Sri Krishna gives at the very beginning. In the second chapter, we see Sri Krishna teaching Arjuna the way of knowledge and the way of work. But when it comes to brass tacks, Shri Krishna says, discipline your sensory system at the outset. That's because this desire to which the senses and the mind succumb, that can rob you of your realization, rob you of knowledge, and rob you of discrimination. And elsewhere Shri Krishna says, when we don't have the power of discrimination, when that is absent in us, that means spiritual death. We continue to be living, we continue to be social animals, but animals, that's it. The power of discrimination is the one thing that distinguishes human beings from animals. So, disciplining the senses, that is a preliminary discipline that Sri Krishna describes in the Gita. So these are the several interpretations of uprightness. Now we'll see some practical steps in acquiring this uprightness and strengthening this important quality. The first is the importance of having an ideal. We don't need to be upright if you don't have a higher ideal to strive for. Why do we need to be upright? Why do we need to be moral? If I can get along by not being so moral, if I can accomplish the end I choose to accomplish without worrying much about the means, why should I be moral? That's a very important question. People who don't take morality seriously, they don't really think about this question. But for our analysis, why should we be moral? Swami Vivekananda says, the true sanction for morality is in our own self. Because we are divine, because we are divine, we have to be moral. If you are not moral, we are placing a screen between us and our true self. We become more and more bound to the world if we are immoral. As we saw before, immorality comes with a great price. More of bad impressions, 
making it that much more difficult to get rid of them later. So, why should we be moral? Because we are the self. Why shouldn't we hurt others? That's because they are our own self. We are the self, we are the Atman, they are also the Atman. If you are hurting them, we are essentially hurting ourselves. We may not be able to appreciate this truth now, but we are hurting ourselves in that, by hurting them, we deepen our own bad impressions and we are hurting our own spiritual growth. So love thy neighbor as thyself. Vedanta says, because your neighbor is thyself. You don't need to imagine he is thyself. He is your very self. You are the Atman, he is also the Atman. So we are moral and upright because only that will help us manifest our hidden divinity. So we should have an ideal. When we have an ideal, and when this ideal is manifestation of our divinity, we can be consistently upright. Not upright for a while and then letting the mind take its own course. But we have an ideal. When we have the spiritual ideal, manifestation of the spirit which we truly are, then we begin to judge our actions and thoughts in line with this ideal. Whenever we commit a mistake, we become aware that it is a mistake. We try not to commit the same mistake again. And that way we commit less number of mistakes. But a person not having a higher ideal keeps on committing mistakes, not knowing that they are mistakes. Because there is no reference point with which they could know if these thoughts and actions are right or wrong. That's why Swami Vivekananda gives a beautiful teaching. He says, if a man with an ideal commits a thousand mistakes, I'll say that a man without an ideal commits 50,000 mistakes. It's because of this. You have a reference point in one case. So we know when we commit a mistake, we know that we have committed a mistake. We try not to do it again. But in the absence of an ideal, mistakes after mistakes, since I don't know that they are mistakes, my whole life becomes a bundle of mistakes, 50,000 mistakes. So Swami Vivekananda says, we need to have an ideal. So that having an ideal and keeping the mind oriented toward the ideal will help us grow in uprightness. And second important step in acquiring uprightness is taking care of the means. We have a wonderful lecture of Swami Vivekananda, Work and Its Secret. It runs to just some three or four pages in the complete works. So there, Swamiji speaks of means and end. He says, take care of the means. The end will take care of itself. Whenever you are doing anything, he says, take care of the means. The means should be above board, morally beyond question. What are the different processes to be adopted toward the accomplishment of a particular end? So analyze all that and take care of the means. And once you have decided on the means to be adopted, don't think about the end. 
Swami Vivekananda says, with the means taken care of all right, the end must come. So he dilates on this important subject there, taking care of the means and taking care of the end. At the end of this lecture, in the last two paragraphs, he makes a very important point. He says, let us perfect the means, the end will take care of itself. For the world can be good and pure only if our lives are good and pure. It is an effect and we are the means. Therefore, let us purify ourselves. Let's make ourselves perfect. What is meant by means is made very clear in this last paragraph. The world is an effect and we are the means. That means our body, our mind, basically our mind is the means with which we see this world, with which we are affected by this world, we interact with this world. So this world is an effect. Every one of us has our own world. The world of senses is the same for everyone. But how I look upon this world, how I interact with people, is entirely unique to me. So Swami Vivekananda says, we ourselves are the means. He says, the world can be good and pure only if our lives are good and pure. It is an effect and we are the means. Therefore, let us purify ourselves. Let us make ourselves perfect. So purification of our body, purification of our mind, strengthening the will, that is what amounts to taking care of the means. That is the ultimate, taking care of the means. But when it comes to work, as we saw before, crookedness can make us justify the means if the end is accomplished somehow or other. So in our everyday work, we need to be aware of the means, with the power of discrimination, with the wisdom we have. We need to be sure about the means and then not worry about the end. That is the way we can be upright. When we don't worry about the end, all of our energy is spent in discharging the means. Otherwise, the mind has a tendency to perpetually worry about the outcome. Oh, how is it going to be? Will it turn out well, turn out right? That is the nature of the mind. It's always thinking about the future, worrying itself and worrying us because we are one with this mind. Swami Vivekananda says, take care of the means and you can let go of the end. With the means taken care of all right, the end must come. The same teaching we get in the Gita. To work alone you have the right, not to the fruits of your work. Let not the fruits of your action be the motive for your action. And don't be attached to inaction either, Sri Krishna teaches. To work alone you have the right, you shouldn't be attached to the fruits of action. How to satisfy these contrary requirements? So it's better avoid whatever you can avoid, avoid work. Avoiding work will only make us slide back to tamas, inertness, laziness. So we need to work. But the Gita teaches how to work. Take care of the means. That means put your whole attention on what needs to be done. 
you have decided on the means to be adopted concentrate yourself on that concentrate yourself on work what needs to be done now and swami vivekananda says the end must come the end will come and in case the end still doesn't come in line with our expectation a very important sanskrit word says what do you have to lose you have done your best you have nothing to lose or you can examine if there is something wrong in your means and also the gita says there are so many uncertain factors that can influence the outcome of work so what we have to do is take care of the means be in the present when you are doing something don't let the mind go toward the future or toward the past but be in the present this moment and the end will take care of itself and when we make it a habit to offer the fruits of our actions to god we won't be anxious anymore about the end the end will come and the next point is doing work as worship work is inevitable everyone has to do some work or other physical work for some mental work for another it could be a sedentary work but mental work so work of some kind is essential for physical sustenance the gita says you cannot be without work even if you make a false resolve that you won't fight he teaches arjuna even if you make a resolve he says it's a false resolve mithyaisha vyavasayaste if you make a false resolve that you are not going to work prakriti will make you work nature will make you work nature means not something outside waterfall scenery and all that nature means our own mind our own nature if it is our nature to work escaping from work is not possible wherever we go the mind will be with us so shri krishna says if you resolve not to work your very nature prakriti will make you work so work is inevitable work has to be done shri krishna says do it as worship when we do it as worship we begin to be more and more upright when we understand uprightness as keeping the mind the senses and our action in line synchronization at all these levels mind speech and actions that becomes possible when we try to do work as worship when we do work as worship as we saw before we offer the fruits of our actions to god and we are no more anxious while doing work the energy that needs to be spent in doing work gets dissipated when we think about the future when we think about the outcome so the gita says conserve your energy do it with your whole mind when we do it with our whole mind we are able to cultivate alertness within that alertness gives us an idea what the mind wants to do the body is busy hands are busy we are doing something the mind suddenly wants to go somewhere else when i don't do work as worship i go along with the mind the work is going on or i have a book open book in front of me my eyes are open 
I study a few lines. Suddenly the mind has gone somewhere else. I have also gone with it. I, not this body, this body is here. With eyes open. But I, the Atman, consciousness, which is supposed to have animated this body and which is supposed to have helped us receive stimuli from the book. That consciousness has gone for a tour along with the mind somewhere else. That is unfortunate state familiar to every one of us. So when we do work with a conscious mind, not thinking about the future, but holding it in leash to the present, we become more and more alert within. When we become more and more alert, whenever there is a tendency for the mind to flit, we become aware. We don't go behind it. We can say that is a sign of spiritual progress. Not having visions, not having good dreams, but this. The mind will flit. That is its nature. But I don't need to go along with it. Easier said than done. But with practice, it's possible. That is what Sri Krishna assures us. With practice and detachment, this mind can be disciplined. Practice, repeated practice, repeatedly making the mind dwell on the task before us. It could be a work that we are doing or it could be our japa and meditation. Sri Krishna says, by practice, repeated practice, every time the mind strays, he tells Arjuna, Patiently bring it back, bring it back, slowly. Shanai shanai ruparamed buddhya dhritigrihitaya. Hold the mind with your buddhi and bring it back, slowly. Shanai shanai. Slowly, little by little, bring back the mind. So that kind of a struggle becomes possible and becomes fruitful when we do work as worship. Especially when we do repetitive work, this becomes possible. We can observe this. We can observe our own self. When we do it, when the mind wants to go somewhere else, no. Put it back on the work in hand. That way we grow in strength. We grow in uprightness. So that is another aspect of cultivating uprightness. And Swami Vivekananda says, how to do work as worship. We have seen this teaching any number of times before, but we can see this any more number of times. Swamiji says, when you are doing any work, do not think of anything beyond. Do it as worship, as the highest worship, and devote your whole life to it for the time being. Whatever you do, devote your whole mind and heart and soul to it. Swami Vivekananda says, I once met a great sannyasin who cleansed his brass cooking utensils, making them shine like gold with as much care and attention as he bestowed on his worship and meditation. So no work is secular. No work is unholy. No more distinction, whether we meditate or pray or do anything else. Doing it as worship. Because it is the Atman behind all this, our true self. And God that way is a true prime mover. Prime mover behind all our actions. 
When we do it that way, we cultivate more and more alertness, and that helps us grow in uprightness. So we'll summarize the points that we discussed today. Uprightness involves living for certain higher values, and that calls for sacrifice. Sacrifice of various kinds. When we hold fast to certain principles, some things automatically fall off from us. And among implications of uprightness, we saw that Sri Shankaracharya said, brightness is simplicity or the absence of crookedness. Sri Ramanuja said, it's a uniform disposition toward others in body, mind, and speech. And in Sant Gyaneshwar's interpretation, we saw that uprightness means treating all equally without likes or dislikes, not making a distinction of mine or of others, and an upright mental attitude, not holding grudge against anyone. And uprightness also means a disciplined sensory system. And among the ways to grow in uprightness, we saw having an ideal, a higher ideal, is very helpful. That helps us commit less mistakes in life and grow in uprightness and then taking care of the means so that the end takes care of itself. And then we saw doing work as worship, dedicating our whole life to it for the time being, not letting the mind drift toward the future or the past, not think about the fruits of our actions, but keeping it riveted in the work on hand. And that helps us grow in uprightness. Thank you.